0: Please take out your Bibles we turn to Philippians chapter 3, we're finally moving on from chapter 2, page 982. I have been unwell all week. Thankfully my voice is finally starting to come back, so forgive the, the raspiness. <clears throat> Hopefully it sounds kind of cool a little bit. Um, but I'm hopped up on drugs and caffeine and I'm excited about Mike, so you've you got to stay with me today. I'm, I'm excited today. We've got a great text. There's some wonderful gospel goodness in chapter 3 that we're going to get to here soon. We've already seen that gospel, remember, in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. It was the good news of the person in the work of Jesus Christ, who was God, but humbled himself by taking the form of a servant, becoming a man, dying on the cross. That's, that's the heart of the gospel. It's what Christ has done to save sinners. He came, he lived, he died, he rose again. Okay, but what exactly does that do for us? How does this whole thing work? We now know what Christ has done. Well, then how do we benefit from that? How do we gain Christ? Chapter 3 tells us. There's great stuff here. We're going to be in this chapter for a number of weeks. Peek ahead to verse 8 in chapter 3. Here's probably the main idea that we're driving Paul has already said that to live is Christ and to die is gain. How is that possible? Verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's the nature of the Christian life. We've spent the last two weeks looking at the central role that service and sacrifice play in the Christian life. But all of that is dependent upon this. We willingly serve, we gladly sacrifice because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. All of us are constantly assessing and judging value. We live our lives and make our decisions based upon what we most value at the time. And we are willing to give up less valuable things to gain more valuable things. So for Paul, and for every Christian after him... Christ is what we most value, and that then shapes and governs our entire lives. And so Paul will go on to say that he's willing to suffer the loss of all other things that he may gain Christ and be found in him. Everything else pales in comparison to Christ. Everything else is of less value. Therefore, he's willing to give up everything lesser to gain that which is greater. Christ, the most valuable thing. That's the question then. If Christ is life, if Christ is the most valuable thing, how do we get him? How do we then gain this most valuable thing? Look at verse 9. Paul's so good. He's such a good writer. He tells you, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's how we gain Christ. That's how what Christ has done, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, benefits us and becomes ours in chapter 3, only by faith. That's what Paul is now driving at in this entire chapter. That's where we're going, but we've got to get there. We've got to first look at the context into which Paul so wonderfully wrote this good news. We've got to start this morning with verse 1. And we're back in verse 1 in familiar Philippians territory. Verse 1, we're back to rejoice in the Lord. You want to see a little inclusio, a little sandwich, if you peek ahead to chapter 4, verse 4. Paul will close this section again by saying, rejoice in the Lord again, I say rejoice. So we've touched a fair amount on joy, but most of it's been about Paul's joy. Now that we finally get this explicit command to the Philippians and to us to rejoice, this is a good time to take a closer look at joy. I was going to try uh, to take the first three verses this morning to answer the question, how can you rejoice in the Lord? But I've been getting so long-winded that for your sake and by my own good mercy, I called an audible yesterday and made this two sermons. I am trying to be shorter. Be patient with me. Uh, Verse 1 this week. And then next week, we'll look at verses 2 and 3. Then Mike will be preaching his first sermon here as one of our pastors on the 25th. And then we'll be ready to tackle righteousness at the beginning of September. So two weeks on these three verses. Here's the command. Rejoice. Here's the question. How? Some of you guys, I know you some of you are going through some terrible stuff. I was sick all week, and it wasn't fun. I'm not a good sick person. Um, But that's nothing compared to what some of you are going through. Some of you are experiencing dreadful circumstances. Health problems, home problems, work problems, relationship problems. Everything may seem to be going wrong. You may be feeling pretty down. And so you then drag yourself into church, and here you hear the command from the Word and from your pastor, Hey, rejoice! How? These verses tell us. How can we have Joy. Three steps I'm going to draw from these verses. We're only going to get to the first one this week. First, we rejoice by rehearsing the gospel. We'll spend our whole time there. Then we'll come back next week and see that you rejoice by rejecting false gospels. And then you rejoice by resting in your gospel identity. Let me read God's word for you first. Here's where the joy comes from. It's in the word. I'll read verses 1 through 3, but we're going to focus on verse 1. Philippians 3, verses 1 through 3. This is what God wants to say to you this morning. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision. Worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. If you would, bow with me. Let's go to the Lord and pray. Father, we just sang it, and now we pray it. We ask that you would speak, O oh Lord. We thank you for your word. Father, I thank you that it is very strong, and it is very capable, when I feel very weak and very incapable. I pray that I would decrease and that you would increase. I pray that your word would be clear. I pray that Christ would be clear and that Christ would be beautiful to our hearts. And we know that we need your spirit to do that. So Father, speak and work. Help us to understand how good you are. Father, fill our hearts with joy. We are often so joyless. We pray that you would use your word this morning to give us great joy in Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. All right, first off, we've got to deal with that first word, and the first word is finally. Now, that seems a little strange, because if you look ahead, it seems that we're only about halfway uh, through the book at this point. Now, if you've listened to any amount of preaching in your life, including mine, this isn't that strange to you. You frequently say finally, and then go on for like 25 more minutes, right? So maybe Paul's just doing that, Uh, I don't know, but some people really freak out about this and say, look, it can't be, it must be two different letters, or this, that, or the other. No, it's... It's not. This isn't that big of a deal. The word in the Greek can just mean now, or it can mean as for the remaining things, or as for the rest of the things. All he's doing with his word is transitioning to a new topic, and he's summarizing what he has said and what he wants to say. And so he says, brothers, now moving on to the next thing, the main thing, brothers, don't forget. Rejoice. And you guys, don't forget your grammar. Grammar is important. Verbs have... Mood Mood expresses how the word is intended to be used or understood. A verb in the indicative mood expresses fact, reality, the way things are. Indicative is the gospel mood. Uh, Chapter 2, 5 through 11 is all indicative. It's all about Christ and what he has done. It is finished. It is accomplished fact. But the verb rejoice is in the imperative mood, which is the mood of Command. If the verb is in the imperative, it expresses something that the speaker or writer desires now you to do or respond to. Paul desires you to do something. In fact, he commands you to do something here. He says, with full apostolic authority, he commands you under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to rejoice. To be full of joy. And that brings us to what we've seen as one of the main themes of the book. It's often said that joy is the main theme of the book, but we've tried to make the case that the main theme is Jesus Christ. Remember, the Christ hymn is chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. That's the heart and soul of the letter around which everything else revolves and radiates from. That's what we just saw in 3.8. Paul's driving passion is to know Christ Jesus But this gospel that is Christ is such good news that it cannot but help to have an impact. And that effect is joy. So we've titled this whole series through this book, Gospel Generated Joy. It's not just joy. It's gospel generated joy. We are talking about joy, but ultimately we're talking about the source. Of that joy, which is the gospel, a gospel that when known, loved and lived will produce joy. And so Paul, after rehearsing that gospel in verses five through 11, now commands the Philippians to respond appropriately. And that response is rejoice, have joy. What is joy? Let's review a little bit of Greek. I've done this a few times, but it's really important to help us understand what joy actually is and what it's actually not. Sixteen times Paul uses some form of this word joy in this short letter. The Greek word for joy is, does anybody remember? Kera. It's kera is joy, which is really, really significant if we remember that the Greek word for grace is, anyone? Keris. Good. Kera. keris. You can't miss Right? How similar they sound. It's the same root. Charis is grace. That is unearned, unmerited favor. I heard it put this way uh, this week in a way I'd never heard before, but I liked it. Grace is not just unmerited favor, grace is demerited favor. It's not just that we don't deserve it, it's actually that we deserve the exact opposite of it. It's God giving to us good when we actually deserve bad. And if charis is grace, if it is God being good to us when we deserve the opposite, then chara must be joy because of that grace. Joy is gladness because of grace. Joy equals glad for grace. God has been eternally gracious and good to us in Jesus Christ, and therefore we are then We are content, we are convinced, as we will sing at the end, that all is well. So that's how I've defined joy. It is a deep down, settled conviction that all is well. Even when everything around you, even when circumstances may be far from well, that's joy. That's why we've kind of introduced this song we're going to sing at the end as sort of our Philippians theme song. All is well, all will be well, all must be well settled conviction that in christ all is well and then the gladness that results from that conviction and since it is from the gospel that grace comes from christ we first need to understand that that makes this joy something entirely different from what the world means by joy and what the world experiences as joy. Notice the qualification that Paul gives. He doesn't just say rejoice. He says rejoice in the Lord. So he explicitly roots this joy in Jesus. He's not leaving us to figure things out or to try to come up with where this joy comes from. He is telling us the only place that this kind of joy is to be found, and that is in Jesus in Christ alone my hope is found we sing same thing in Christ alone my joy is found and this is really really important for us to get notice related to this also who he is talking to who the command is specifically directed toward he says finally brothers we saw last week in 225 Paul referred to Epaphroditus, as his brother. He said it back in chapter 1, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, which again here is not a term of exclusivity, but inclusivity, because it includes sisters. Brothers includes sisters. It's a term referring to men and women in Christ. The point he is making is that 1-1, one, one, those who are saints... Those who are saved and set apart are also then adopted into the family of God, men and women, Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, all of them. Regardless of any of the identity markers that our culture so loves to emphasize and use as tools of separation or classification of either power or oppression, Paul says none of those things have any merit in the kingdom. None of those things have any merit in the family of God. We are all of us, those of us, saved by the grace of God. We are one. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. That's our identity. That's how we identify ourselves. So brothers is a term of inclusivity in that it includes the ladies, but it also is a term of exclusivity in that it it excludes everyone who is not in Christ. Everyone who has not repented and believed in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Which means that when Paul writes and commands joy and he directs it only to brothers, to those who are in Christ, only to the children of God, that then means, I think, that only Christians can actually have and experience this joy. True, biblical, gospel Joy. There is no true joy outside of the family of God. There is no, no possibility for a true joy outside of Jesus. Non-Christians cannot have the joy that we can have because it is only in the Lord. This is only for those who have been redeemed and adopted. Supernatural joy can only be experienced by those who have been supernaturally born. Rejoice requires. Rebirth. So the first question you need to be asking yourself this morning is, am I born again? Some of you are visiting. Some of you are uh, with us, or you're not yet Christians. And yes, you do need to be joyful. It's a command. But what you first need to see and understand is that to be joyful, you first need Jesus. You are a sinner, and that sin separates you from the God who is the only source joy, And so what you need to do first is to be aware of that sin, hate that sin, and then turn away from that sin, which the Bible calls repentance. Repentance is its laying down our arms. It's giving up. It's giving up our rejection of God. It's giving up our attempt to be good enough for him. Giving up our attempt to prove ourselves and justify ourselves. The first thing to do is to turn away from sin and to turn to him. Repent away from sin, and believe faith in him. The joy results from that. And Now listen, we're not saying that non-Christians can't be happy. We're not saying that non-Christians can't experience pleasure and some sort of worldly experience of joy. Of course they can. Right? I'm being specific to this type of joy in Jesus. Obviously, you cannot have that if you are not in Jesus. So this true lasting eternal joy is only found in Christ. And I want to make the case that it is a fundamental part of the Christian life. It is a great blessing and great privilege of the Christian life. And it's all over the Bible. Psalm 4 7 says, David, you have put, David says to God, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and their wine abound. David says that there's more joy in God than there is in the best meal and the best wine, which in the Old Testament are both symbols of great joy in Scripture. David says all of these examples of earthly joy cannot even compare with the great joy that I can find in God. Psalm 16, which we read, David again says, In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. He doesn't just say some joy. He doesn't just say partial joy. He says all joy, fullness of joy. And then he says never-ending pleasure. I don't think we often think in those terms. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit. What the Spirit works and produces in us is joy. And then we have the command before us, part of God's law, something that we must and get to do, in response to the gospel, Christian rejoice. And yet, man, how many genuinely joyful Christians do you really know? How many of us tend to be more characterized by moroseness, melancholy, gloominess, and sadness? Why is that? And is it a problem? Now, again, qualifications. Qualifications. Don't hear me wrong. Surely you cannot hear me wrong. I'm the one who has been emphasizing, maybe overemphasizing, the difficulty of the Christian life. Life is hard. Life in Christ is generally harder. Christians do get sad. Christians do get depressed. Almost unbearably bad things happen to us sometimes. And we wrestle and we struggle with those things. I am not saying that joy is like that little yellow sprite with blue hair in the, um, what's the movie called? Inside Out. In the Pixar movie about emotions and joy is this bubbly thing that says be positive and bouncing around and is, is all bubbly and just annoyingly positive. No, that's not what I'm talking about with joy. But we have to deal with the fact that we are commanded here in God's law, in Scripture, to rejoice. And just in case you want to qualify that away, okay, I'll rejoice. Sometimes things are going well right now, I'll rejoice. Uh, then Paul won't let you do that because he expands on that. In chapter 4, verse 4, when he says, Hey, just in case I'm not clear, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. So we can't just ignore this. It's there. But we also can't just ignore the difficulties of life. We cannot ignore the book of Job. We cannot ignore the Psalms of Lament. We cannot ignore the fact that Jesus himself was the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. So how do we reconcile... These two things, the difficulty, the grief, the sorrow of life, and the joy that we are commanded to have. I think 2 Corinthians 6.10 is really helpful in doing this for us. If you want to flip there, you can real quick. It's just a short verse, um, but we're going to spend a little time talking about this. Second Corinthians 6.10 can help. We're still kind of trying to figure out what the nature of this joy is. In 2 Corinthians 6, Paul is talking about how he doesn't want to put any obstacle In the way of the gospel, any obstacle in the way of others. And so he sets up this kind of these pairs to describe kind of the the nature and his his way of life. And one of those pairs is verse 10 of chapter 6, where he describes himself as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That's really interesting. That tells us that these two things cannot be mutually contradictory. By joy, then, Paul cannot mean something light and petty and glib or silly. He means something weighty and serious, something that is not opposed to sorrow, but something that can persist even through sorrow. That's why he can pin this letter about joy from prison, awaiting a sentence that may mean his death, and yet he can rejoice In the midst of suffering, the Philippians are suffering, yet he he can command them to rejoice. So joy does not then and cannot then mean the absence of hardship and sorrow, but the ability by the grace of God to rejoice in the midst of it. So I'm not telling you, oh, I just forgot the guy's name, the 80s song, Don't Worry, Be Happy. I'm not telling you to just, hey, you know, just don't worry, be happy. I'm not commending to you the world's understanding of joy and happiness. And by the way, we often try to draw a distinction between joy and happiness. I don't think we can actually really maintain that from Scripture. But we can draw a distinction between worldly joy and happiness and godly joy and happiness. Uh, the first is a joy that is dependent upon circumstances. This is what we're so familiar with. This is worldly happiness. Things go well, you are happy. You get things that you want, you are happy. The world's joy is an entirely circumstance-dependent joy. So the idea of sorrowful yet always rejoicing is just foreign to the world. But we are talking about something Deeper, something greater, something lasting, something independent of circumstances. Something that does not require you to be healthy and wealthy. Something that does not require everything to go according to your plan or that requires your ease or your comfort. We are talking something different. We are talking real, true joy. Gospel gladness. And we're commanded to have it, to pursue it. And thus, as a command, it is something that we are to obey. It requires an act of the will on our part to choose to obey it. And so, stick with me, if you are not happy in Jesus, if you are not joyful, I'm speaking to myself here, then we are disobeying this command. We are doing something wrong. I guys, think about it. Honestly, let's think objectively from the perspective of the scriptures in light of the gospel, in light of verses five through 11, why are we so sad and sullen? Let me give you a little Spurgeon. When you don't know what to say, just Google Spurgeon and you'll find something really, really good. Uh, Listen here to the Prince of Preachers. I love this. And Spurgeon was a man that suffered with deep Depression his entire life. Go get the book called Spurgeon's Sorrows if you want to uh, study depression from the perspective of a pastor who really experienced it. But listen to what this uh, frequently depressed pastor says. He says, Beloved, if we are not happy, it is entirely our own fault, for there is plenty of reason for being happy. Come, Christian, why are you so cast down? Why are you so disquieted? Have you not forgotten your redemption? forgotten your adoption, forgotten your justification, forgotten your safety in Christ. Have you not somewhat neglected to survey your hopes? We have every reason to be happy, and if we are not so, it must be because we fail to remember the privileges which our Lord has bestowed upon us. Let me stir you up, my brothers and sisters, to happiness this morning. And he goes on to say, he explains that task. He says, what a blessed task is mine to get to urge my brethren to be happy. How highly favored are you to be exhorted to so delicious. It's oh, a good use of delicious. So delicious a privilege. When happiness becomes a duty, who will not be glad? What a blessed people we are to whom it is to be delighted is but to obey God's command." To whom rejoicing in the Lord is an obligation as well as a privilege. That's, that's really, really good. What a blessed task that I have right now. I get to encourage you to be happy. And how favored are you that this is what God commands to you in his law. Happiness is a duty to obey God's word. We so frequently associate obedience with with drudgery and with doing something that we know that we shouldn't want to do, but that we really, really want to do. No, no, not here. To obey God's command here is to be happy and to rejoice and to delight. What a privilege that our God commands us and wants us happy. And so the question that then remains for the rest of our time, finally... Uh, 20 minutes or so. If If this is a command, if this is a present active imperative verb, something we're commanded to do and then continue to do, rejoice always, how? How do we do this? Well, Spurgeon told us a moment ago if you were paying attention. He said, if you are sad, have you not forgotten? Which then implies... the solution to our lack of joy is remembering. Sounds underwhelming. I hope not because this is the secret. Proverbs 23 7. I'm using the New King James here. Proverbs 23 7 says, For as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. In other words, what we need to understand is that you are what you think. What you think and believe determines everything. It determines your entire life. It determines what you feel. Feelings are not just entirely random things that happen to us out of control. Um, they are direct results of what we think and of what we believe and of what we value. And thus what we think determines our joy. So you we're know, trying to answer the question, how do we rejoice? And we must again remember the important qualifier in the command, rejoice in the Lord. That's the only place that you're going to find this joy. So what does that again mean? How do we rejoice in the Lord? Well, let's again sneak ahead and cheat and look and connect this to verse 8. Look again to verse 8 where Paul talks about the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So to rejoice in the Lord then is to know the Lord. But still, we've got to understand what it means to know the Lord. We need to draw a distinction between knowing about the Lord and knowing the Lord. Those are two different things. When Paul talks about his all-surpassing desire to know the Lord, he means so much more than knowing some facts about Jesus. He means so much more than knowing that he was a Jewish rabbi who lived at the beginning of the first century, who traveled around and taught in Israel, who even performed some miracles. It means so much more than knowing and believing that he claimed to be God and that he was God. It's more than believing that he was crucified, died, and was buried. It's even more than believing that he rose again. Those are all facts, critically important facts, but just the facts, ma'am. And remember... Faith is much more than just knowledge. As James says in James 2.19, even the demons know all of that and even the demons believe all of that and they shudder. But they do not have true faith in the Lord. They do not know the Lord. So Paul here has to mean more than knowing about the Lord. And he does. When he says that he desires nothing more than to know the Lord, he means to savingly. Know the Lord. And that means not just to know about him, but to know him, which means to trust him and to treasure him and to love him and delight in him and take pleasure in him, to then worship him and live for him. That's what Paul means. That's what it means to know the Lord. Do you know him in this Have you experienced some degree? And again, I'm not a naturally joyful person. So I'm not telling you, you've got to have this certain personality type and just be bubbly and annoying and, and always positive. I'm saying, have you found joy, gospel gladness, contentment in Christ? Do you know, like Paul, and then live accordingly, that Christ is the most valuable and the most beautiful thing that there is in all of reality? Do you believe this and know this about Jesus? I've recommended to you before uh, J.I. Packer's classic work, Knowing God. I'm recommending it again. His book is largely kind of about uh, this. He does a good job of drawing this distinction and pointing out how we can move from merely knowing about God to intimately knowing God. So what do we do? How do we turn knowledge about God to knowledge of God? Now, First and foremost, this is, of course, a work of the Holy Spirit as he opens eyes and changes hearts and changes minds. But we know that the Spirit works through means. And as we've seen in our study of sanctification, we are called to obey. We have a role to play. So what do we do? I I think that Packer is absolutely correct when he puts it very simply and frankly like this. He says, we turn each truth that we learn about God into matter for meditation before God, leading to prayer and praise to God. One more time, don't miss this. We take truth that we learn about God into meditation before God, then in prayer and praise to God. He says that meditation is the answer. Amen and amen. Psalm one. The opening of the whole 150 chapter book, the foundational introductory psalm, blessed, which by the way is just the Hebrew word for happy. So you could say happy or joyful is the man. That's what we all want. What is it that makes man blessed or joyful? His delight is in the law of the Lord. That's so strange to our ears. That sounds so, he delights in the law of the Lord. And then on his law. He meditates day and night. See, that's the secret. That's that's the solution. It's so simple, yet we refuse to believe it. He says his pleasure, his delight is in God's law. And again, by God's law, we don't just mean the rules. It includes that because the rules are good, right? The law's good. But by God's law, he means simply God's word. God's a revelation of himself, meaning ultimately God. Our God who so graciously speaks our God who is triune as we learned back in chapter 2 verse 6 which includes the son Jesus who is God and how is he first revealed to us back in John 1 1 he is the word he is the full and final revelation of who God is and what he is like Jesus is God speaking to us and saying here is who I am and here is what I am like look to Jesus So Psalm 1 is telling us that blessedness and happiness is found in finding pleasure and delight in God himself as he speaks and reveals himself in his son through his word. The verse goes on. It says it's on this law, this this word, that he meditates day and night. And again, that, according to Packer, is the key from moving to knowledge about to knowledge of. And this is what I think so many of us miss and could at least be a part of so many of our struggles with doubt and just our general gloominess. We know the word is important. We know that the word is the means of of grace. It is the way that God speaks to us. It is the way that God works in the world, and we know that prayer is the way that we speak back to God. So we generally, if we're doing well, we try to read for a few minutes. We try to then pray for a few minutes, but then we get on with our day, and we pretty quickly cannot even remember what we read or even why we read, because it has so little impact on our actual lives. Why is that? It's because we've missed this. We've missed this critical intermediary step. It's not blessed is the man who reads the law for a few minutes in the morning and then gets on with his life. No, it says blessed is the man who meditates on his law day and night. Spurgeon said, have you not forgotten? Implication, you need to remember. Solution, meditation. You're not Eastern meditation. Not sitting crisscross applesauce saying om meditation. Not meditation as an emptying of your mind. No, biblical meditation is the exact opposite. Biblical meditation is the intentional filling of your mind. And filling it intentionally and regularly with the things of God. To meditate means simply to think. It means to call the mind. It means to dwell and then to apply the things that one knows about the person, the promises, the works, and the ways of God. It means to talk to yourself, to argue with yourself, to reason with yourself. Why so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. That's meditation. We're constantly assaulted by doubt, unbelief, Fear and anxiety? Well meditation is the practice of taking every one of those thoughts captive to the word and truth of God. It is the intentional process of taching, taking such false feelings and bringing them in line with what we know to be true about God and then doing that throughout your day and then throughout your life. Meditation is how we remember. And so what we've all got to understand. This may sound so strange and weird and poor. Maybe it's a super religious or Christian thing. No. Listen, you are meditating on something. Everyone is meditating on something always. Your mind is filled with some... There is some narrative that you have constructed in your head about reality and about the good life and why you exist and what you for what you're for and where you'll be happy if you get these things there's this narrative constantly going on in your head that you are constantly thinking about and judging and evaluating all of reality through the lens of this story that's meditation don't forget we are what we think we become what we behold influences is, is everything so what you surround yourself with what you pursue what you desire what you think about affects Everything about you. It makes you who you are. Peek ahead again to verse 7. I can't wait to get to this part of chapter 3. Let me give it a couple weeks. It's so good. Look at verse 7. Think about the implications of this verse. Paul says, compared to knowing Christ. He says that he counts everything else as rubbish. It's an even stronger word in the Greek. The King James translates it, dung. a word means waste. It means refuse he says that's, that's everything else compared to Christ. And put in those terms, doesn't that verse then make our obsession and focus on such things pretty absurd and disturbing? Right? For who spends his time thinking of and longing after and pursuing trash or dung or refuse? Who fills his mind with such things and then pursues Those things. Nobody. Yet this is in effect what many of us do when we value and pursue such things more than Christ. We meditate on trash when we have before us treasure. As C.S. Lewis has so famously said, God finds our desires not too big, but too small. We're like little kids sitting in a weird little back triangle We don't even have a yard, a cement block. I don't know. We put our kids back in there to play. Like, oh, it's the yard. Um, It's like, oh, go play in the cement space to get sun for like two hours back there. And they think that's fun and that's good and great. Um, But we're sitting around like content with that when God has offered us like an all-inclusive getaway in the Caribbean. What do you really desire? What is your heart set on? What are you filling your mind with? And how does that compare to Christ? The super simple secret to spiritual joy is to fill your mind with Christ. It is to meditate on him. And so look back at the second part of verse one. Here's why the sermon had to become uh, two sermons because I'm just now getting back to the verse. He commands us to rejoice. And look at what Paul says there. Back to the verse. He says, To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and is safe for you. Now, it's difficult to say definitively what specifically Paul is referring to when he writes the same things. There's all kinds of different proposals. It could be the warning that's about to follow that we'll look at next week. It could be the preceding command to rejoice that we're talking about now. I think it more generally. Calvin thinks Paul is saying that um, he is uh, that Paul is now repeating the same things in writing that he would have previously taught them in person when he was there with them. The point is that in some way they've heard all this before from Paul. But Paul is a good teacher. He understands that people rarely get things the first time. And so he has no problem repeating himself. And as we've said, the heart and the soul of this letter, everything he says revolves around Christ. It revolves around the gospel. He repeats the gospel to them. And then he applies the gospel to them. And he knows that's exactly what the Philippians need. Guys, this is exactly what you need. This sermon that was supposed to be three points became only one because here's how it is. This is the foundation. Here's how you rejoice. It's by regularly rehearsing the gospel and by regularly remembering the gospel and by regularly resting in the gospel. That's what meditation is. Consciously, intentionally, intentionally regularly rehearsing and reminding yourself of what is most important and what is most true. And that is the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, the gospel is not just for non-Christians. It's not just how you get in. It's everything. And so Paul can write to the Romans, the church, to Christians in Romans 1.15 that he is eager to preach the gospel to them. Why? They already know the gospel. They're already saved. But Paul knows that the gospel is so much more than just the power of God for salvation in the sense of justification. But it is also the power of God for salvation in the sense of sanctification, in the sense of the entirety of the Christian life. And so you rejoice by rehearsing the good news. You rejoice by remembering. You rejoice by meditating. And if you're not rejoicing. Because you forgot. And so Paul and Spurgeon and I say to you, remember. Wrong thinking always results in a lack of joy. Always. So if you're struggling with joy, man, get busy. Figure it out. Examine it. Trace trace it back. Has something changed recently? Are you believing something new that you didn't believe before? Have you discovered some new, fun, cool teaching or new thing that has grabbed hold of you? Is that something in line with the gospel? Have you been chasing after and investing in something apart from the gospel? Is there any way your lack of joy is connected back to that? You are what you think. So, brothers and sisters, fill your mind with the things of God. Meditate on the gospel. Look ahead to chapter 4, verse Eight, Paul says, here's the same thing. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about those things. Think about how good God has been to you in Christ. Listen, I know that this is easier said than done. I am preaching to myself, but think with me. If we cannot do this together now, then you'll never do it on your own. Don't just listen to yourself. Talk to yourself. Challenge yourself. Why so much grief? Why so much sorrow? Do not forget who you are. You are a child of God. Do not forget who you were. You were an enemy of God. Do not forget what had to be done to take you from enemy to child. Do not forget the indescribable act of self-sacrificial substitutionary love that was required to rescue you. Isaiah 53, surely he has borne our griefs and he has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was the man of sorrows. And man, he, this is amazing, he bore my sorrows and your sorrows. He took them on himself. He took the sorrow and the griefs so that you could have the joy. And so in Christ, no matter how bad things are, and again, we never want to minimize the bad things, the suffering and the sorrow, but we've got to believe that in Christ there are always greater reasons to rejoice. Your sins are forgiven. The death that you owed has been paid. The eternity that you were to spend in hell has been replaced with an eternity in heaven. You are an enemy separated from God. Now you are a friend child reconciled to God. You have been adopted by God, who is perfectly good and kind, the God of all comfort, the God who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him then graciously give us all things? Your God is the God of infinite, eternal provision and blessing and comfort. And so when we don't rejoice, when I don't rejoice, it's simply because we forget. We refuse to believe all of these wonderful things that are true for us in Christ. We forget that knowing Christ is of surpassing worth. We forget that he's God, become man to die for us so that we could be with him and that he is the source of everything good. And we now have everything good, secured, untouchable by the things of this world. Nothing can separate us from his love. so rejoice. And because also, grace upon grace, don't miss this. Rejoice in him because he rejoices in you. I've been reading Isaiah this week, and I was just struck by Isaiah 62 a couple of days ago. And God's talking about his people, and he's been very clear. Henry made a great point this morning in Sunday school. God does not It's not like, hey, I love you so much. You're so valuable. Let me set my love on you because you're so great, and I'm so glad to have you. No, God has been ripping his people and laying out their sins Um, before them Um, but then in Isaiah 62 we transition to the comfort part of the letter comfort comfort my people and he says in Isaiah 62 4 he's encouraging them he talks about our new name he talks about us as a crown of beauty in his hand and that we shall be called Hephzibah that may not have the sweetest ring to our English ears but it should for it means my delight is in her And then he says so very clearly, for the Lord delights in you. Verse 5, Christian says, your God shall rejoice over you. Brothers and sisters in Christ, God himself delights in you and finds joy in you. And do you know how encouraging and affirming it is to be reminded regularly that my wife delights and finds joy in me, even when she knows me far better than you do? And yet she still loves me? That's what keeps me going. But this, this is so much better than that. God delights and rejoices in me. And he knows me so much better than even my wife does. He knows the depths of my sins and my fears and my unbeliefs. And yet he still loves me. That's where I will find life-giving joy. In the surpassing worth of knowing Christ and being known by Christ in loving Him because He first loved me. So, Christian, rejoice in the Lord. You have an abundance of eternally good reasons to rejoice in the Lord. So, remember. And so, with Paul, again, I say, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord by remembering the Lord. Remember the Lord by meditating on the Lord. Rejoice by rehearsing the gospel of God's amazing grace towards you in Jesus Christ. If you would, bow with me. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for your goodness and for your grace. Father, we know all of these things are objectively true. We read in your word. And it is so clear how good you are to us in Christ. It is so clear that we have nothing over which to be sorrowful and nothing to complain about. Father, we so struggle to rest in and believe what we know is objectively true in Christ. Father, forgive us for our unbelief. Father, forgive us for our lack of joy. Father, put your joy in us. Do in us what we cannot do. For ourselves, I pray that through your word and through these truths and through your son, Jesus Christ, that you would open our eyes to the goodness and the glory and the beauty and the grace of Jesus. And that you would fill us with hope and with joy and with love for him. And we ask all of this in Jesus name. Amen.